optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by LegalZoom, which more than 2 million Americans have used to help start their businesses. Past guests even, such as, well, WordPress lead developer, CEO of Automatic, Matt Mullenweg, now valued at more than a billion dollars, have used LegalZoom to help with their business needs, specifically in his case, to form his company. But LegalZoom isn't just for launching your business. Their services include everything from helping you to manage changing tax laws, reviewing contracts, creating NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, important stuff, handling lease agreements, and assisting with really any other legal challenge, hurdle, inconvenience that typically takes time and effort away from running your business. The best part is that you won't get charged by the hour because LegalZoom isn't a law firm, so they won't be running the clock up and spinning circles just to raise your bill. Instead, they just ask you to pay one low upfront price for whatever it is that you're looking to get a la carte style. So visit LegalZoom.com and check out their business section for all of their services. And if you want special savings, that's the terminology in the copy that they suggest. I don't know what the special savings is, folks, but it's titillating. If you want special savings, enter promo code TIM, T-I-M, at checkout, capital T, lowercase I-M. Again, take a peek, LegalZoom.com, and enter promo code TIM. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year, I focused on dramatically improving a few things. Surprise, surprise. Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit, you name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz it takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. So check it out. Get up to 125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look, helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. Well, hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job every episode to interview and deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out how they do what they do. This episode, we have a real treat, someone you may not have heard of. I believe this is his first ever podcast, Nick Norris. In my mind, he is the ultimate quiet professional, probably the most understated person I've ever had on this podcast. He is an 11-year Navy SEAL officer. He served with Jocko Willink at SEAL Team 3. You may recognize that name, Jocko. Also another person who made their podcast debut here. And 
On top of that, he is a world-class athlete, which I didn't really fully appreciate until after our conversation, startup CEO and board member of the C4 Foundation, which is a new foundation that focuses on supporting active duty SEAL families. And you can find that at c4foundation.org. We talk about a lot in this episode and cover a lot of ground, ranging from his training tips, physical training tips, this human has no physical weaknesses. (laughs) It's really impressive to post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth differentiation, talking about how you separate those two, talking about, say, traumatic brain injury and the links to depression, evidence-based treatments, including some very new treatments for depression, PTSD, and chronic stress. Many people don't realize that approximately 20 veterans and active-duty military personnel kill themselves every day. That means that suicide has killed far more veterans than any enemies whatsoever. And it is a a quiet crisis and a quiet epidemic uh, that I wanted to address on this podcast. There are lots of tactics, lots of stories. Let me give you a bit more bio on Nick. He is a graduate of both the United States Naval Academy and Basic Underwater Demolition, SEAL BUDS, Class 247. Upon completion of SEAL training in 2004, Nick assumed progressively higher positions of leadership within naval special warfare. His deployed roles included combat advisor to Iraqi and Afghan military units, cross-functional team leader, and ground force commander during combat operation in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Nick was most recently assigned to Naval Special Warfare Basic Training Command, SEAL Qualification Training, SQT, as officer in charge prior to transitioning off of active duty. He's also co-founder and CEO of Amavara, a sunscreen company that has invented a new mineral sunscreen technology to protect both consumer health and the environment. You can find more about that at amavara.com. Let's talk about some of his physical accomplishments, which were sent to me after this podcast, but just very briefly. He raced as a member of the U.S. team in the 2007 Adventure Racing World Championships in Scotland. He's raced in multiple races of this type that are multi-day world-class expedition-length races. He has also completed ultra-distance trail running events between 50K and 50-plus miles in length. He competed as related to indoor skydiving in the 2018 Sakura Cup Invitational as part of the U.S. Dynamic 4-Way Team. That was Japan's very first international indoor skydiving competition, a very high-level international dynamic flying tournament that showcased the most talented wind tunnel flyers in the world. And as it relates to bouldering, so rock climbing, he has personally contributed to the development of the Southern California bouldering areas and has climbed V11 with the goal of climbing V12 this year at age 37. To put that in perspective, that places him pretty squarely in the top 0.1% of climbers worldwide. And you can find Nick on Instagram at Nick underscore Norris 1981 on Instagram. So with all that said, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nick Norris. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start with Tokyo. And it is certainly one of my favorite places, having spent a good amount of time there. And uh, I, I told you as we were having brunch a little earlier to save the story because I, I don't like to hear things a second or third time when I'm having these podcast conversations, but it seemed like there was quite a bit to, to dig into. So your first trip to Tokyo, what took you there? Uh, so I went out there with a four-person team to compete in a dynamic four-way wind tunnel competition 
called the Sakura Cup. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the Sakura or Sakura is the cherry blossom, but what on earth? I heard wind tunnel. Then there are a bunch of different phrases associated with that that, sure. that make no sense to me and sound <laughs> vaguely obscene. What was it? Okay, so dynamic four-way is a, a discipline of wind tunnel flying that, you know, it probably started... I'll probably butcher this. People will correct me, but... Uh, That's okay. The internet's good for that. Right, six, seven years ago, uh, maybe longer, where, you know, guys, you know, predominantly in Europe, um, these guys uh, whose team name was the Skywalkers, um, they started flying a lot of tunnel time. And you get bored just kind of doing normal vertical formation skydiving, so like static formation building for time. Um, and I think they started moving around the tunnel with like two people and then adding three and four and then this thing has blossomed into a full-on discipline where uh, you compete in two different, I guess, formats. Um, you do a, a series of speed rounds. So you have, a, I guess, a, a number of different movements, either in a vertical plane or a horizontal plane that are predetermined, and you fly them in uh, you three of those in succession three times for time. You enter the tunnel and then exit the tunnel, and then uh, you get a time and you compete against each other. So you have to hold a, a, a specific position for for increasing periods of time? So you're moving the entire time. Mm -hmm. So think like synchronized swimming, but uh, flying around in a high-speed column of air mm -hmm. in a like a glass cylinder, fishbowl. Mm -hmm. So you do that, and then the other portion is an artistic round. So you do a 90-second a artistic round. Got it. So that's like a, a breakdance battle. Yeah, it's like break, they, they actually call it battling. <laughs> you get it, you battle against another team. What would people want to search online to find videos of this? Are, are there any particular videos or search terms you suggest people start with if they want to see what this actually looks like? Oh, man. So if you put D4W, uh, like wind tunnel, mm -hmm. into Google, it'll pull up a whole bunch of videos. And there's some super elite flyers that we saw out in Japan that were way better than our team. Uh, and even if you look at the Sakura Cup uh, wind tunnel competition, there'll be some videos of the rounds that were flown. It's like, like really, really impl impressive athletes in a very fringe outlandish sport. So you, you have a whole range of, of skills and attributes that you've developed. And uh, we, we shall not name the person who will not be mentioned who's sitting also in the room with us. Um, he is uh, a snake eater in the shadows who prefers to remain as such. But he described you initially to me in uh, a number of very sort of laudatory ways. And then he said he doesn't have any physical weaknesses. Yeah, it's really annoying. And uh, <laughs> so I thought we could shift to another area that you've explored quite a bit which is, I'm going to prompt and then we can jump into it because I said, save it, save it, save it for the podcast. Let's talk about moon boards. What on earth is a moon board? Okay, so a moon board is a, uh, it's a thing that was created by a very famous rock climber whose name is Ben Moon um, out of the UK. And Ben is like, I mean, he's like OG, like strong rock climber, um, super inspirational. Um, you know, did some of the hardest sport climbs in the world and some of the hardest boulder problems in the world. And Ben started a company called Moon Climbing. And uh, he, he has this really famous place called The Schoolroom in uh, the UK. 
it's his training gym and he had this thing uh, a board a, a templated board that has holds on it that never change so he has these problems that have just been there forever like some of the hardest problems i think he said he's ever done were on this board how big is the board oh man and i i'll be off on this just roughly but, yeah so it's probably uh three so maybe 12 feet long i think it's set at a 40 degree angle so it's overhanging so Mm -hmm. it's like three consecutive sheets of plywood and maybe a touch more and it's gridded so uh set distance in between each bolt hole and ben created a specific set of climbing holds with a compass rose on them so the with one on them uh, a compass rose so like a north arrow Uh. so you would go he basically told you where to set you know this number hold in this orientation, in this grid square, or in this bolt hole. And by doing that, you set the board a certain way, and he was able to create boulder problems that people could replicate all over the world by just building this exact copy of his moon board. And it's caught on like wildfire. In the climbing community, they're all over the place in commercial climbing gyms. Where's the strangest place that you have used? Strange or atypical place you've used a moon board? So I on active duty, built three moon boards. I built one in Zamboanga in the Philippines. I built one in Ramadi, Iraq. And then I built one in Zabul province at a fire base called Nabahar. How long does it take to build a moon board? Once you've had had a a, a rehearsal on on one or two. Um, So I'm a terrible carpenter. So I'm really good at convincing people to help me do other things that I can't do. So I had a talented group of CBs, uh, combat construction guys, that I I convinced to uh, shirk all their other responsibilities (laughs) and build a climbing wall in the middle of combat zones. (laughs) So let's talk about these these two disciplines just to start with, because I, I, I find that generally... Well, I find it interesting how someone like yourself looks at different disciplines and I'm fascinated with high performing cohorts of people in any discipline, right? It really doesn't matter. It could be carpentry, could be rock climbing, could be painting. It, it just really the, the discipline itself is less interesting than the, the commonalities among the, the top performers. So if we look at, for instance, the synchronized swimming in an air column, what separates, it could be in any of the different formats you described, it doesn't have to be uh, it, it could be in the battle format, could be in any any of the different formats we, we discussed. What separates the good from the truly exceptional? Like, like what are the characteristics or the the defining practices? Anything that you've been able to pick up since you are very accomplished in this area as well as in climbing? Yeah, what separates the good from the great? Yeah, I mean, so there's a number of things, but I think time. Uh, together as a team, being able to read people's body language, uh, flying in a wind tunnel. I mean, you, you start to see how people telegraph certain movements and uh, you, you learn that through repetition mm-hmm. and just time together. So, I mean, I think that that time as a team, that kind of, uh, I guess you can call it that kind of stress inoculation, you do it so many times that you can just see, you kind of predict where people are going to go just by how they look uh, moments before they do something. So I think that's one of the biggest kind of attributes that, you know, the high, high-end teams have. And then, you know, I think uh, 
the other thing is just their ability in that discipline, their ability to move constantly, like no hesitation, uh, moving almost with no fear that they're going to impact each other. Cause you're, you're talking about flying in a very confined space at very high speeds. And you just trust, like you have total trust that the guy that's in front of you or behind you is going to do his job really well. What, when you say high speed for people who have no exposure to this, because for instance, I've spent one or two sessions in a single day at an iFly facility. Yep. I want to say in the East Bay in Northern California, many, 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 many years ago, which was a phenomenal experience. But I was so concerned with just not eating it face first into something that right. I, I wasn't paying much Valid attention concern. to. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to <laughs> speed. I don't think my input would have mattered. But so, what is what is high speed? Uh, so, like a lot of wind tunnels will fly anywhere between 150. And, and maybe 170 mile an hour wind. So they're, they're pushing vertical wind speeds at like 150 to 170 miles an hour. And when you're flying in that wind, you're not going 170 miles an hour. You're flying you know, upside down um, or right side up in a vertical orientation. And uh, I mean, when you see like the guys that are really, really good, I mean, they're moving, they're probably going, I mean, maybe 20 miles an hour. I mean, 30 miles an hour of like closing speed. So like really fast. I mean, you can get going, if you were in the sky, like jumping out of an aircraft, I mean, you could be moving 120 miles an hour over ground if you were in one of the orientations you're flying at in right. the wind tunnel. Got it. So you'd be covering, we were talking a little bit earlier about wingsuits. Right. Uh, and uh, for those people who haven't seen a wingsuit, uh, A, it's terrifying. B, it, the humans tend to resemble flying squirrels. There's a high mortality rate. And then there's another term for it, which is proximity flying. flying. Why is it called proximity flying? Okay, so I will say this for the record. I don't base jump. I never yep. have. And I don't proximity fly, but I have a bunch of friends that do. Yep. So it's uh, flying very close to like land masses. So when you base jump, you know, the guys, you watch guys wingsuit very close to the side of a mountain uh, or a ridgeline. And what can their, and, and you mentioned, I suppose, uh, just moments ago, 120 miles an hour. So are they achieving those types of speeds? Yeah, even, I mean, probably faster. So they, you know, their glide ratio over ground is like three to one or, or higher. So they're, they're traveling three feet for every foot that they descend. Hmm. So like really fast speed over ground. If we look at, at rock climbing, to, to throw the same question out there, um, and, and you could use a specific example if you wanted in terms of picking someone who you recognize as an elite climber, but a, a, if, uh, if we try to separate the inborn attributes that allow them to be superior climbers, right? Much like you would... I can't learn to have my ankles seemingly dislocate like Michael Phelps. So that's, that's unlikely to be something I can train for. Sure. But there are different training approaches or ways of looking at, say, bouldering problems or other things that might allow people to progress faster and develop faster than others. What are some of the uh, differentiators that you've observed in exceptional climbers versus people who are just kind of like me and half of the things I do, like permanent blue belts who <laughs> never <laughs> quite graduate. 
you know what? I think it's an innate ability to just try hard, like try very, very hard. And, you know, that sounds easy, but it's much more difficult in practice. You know, you look at, you know, there's a guy named Adam Andra who, you know, arguably is the most talented or the strongest rock climber in the world. Um, just amazing to watch the guy climb. And uh, y- you can see the level of tenacity, like just the, the, the way that he approaches climbs where he just does not give up. It's just a relentless pursuit of perfection and like an endless pursuit of perfection. And the guy is magnitude stronger kind of than the average, you know, even elite level climber and is still just, I mean, trains tirelessly to get better. And, uh, yeah, I think that it's that, that, that grit, that ability just to continue to persevere, which, you know, is a huge standout attribute. Is that something that you can develop? I mean, is there a sort of mental theater in which you, how you speak to yourself allows you to do that or, or helps you to do that? I'm just wondering what, if people wanted to try to develop the ability to try harder, which, which I think can be done. I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's certain presets, yeah, right? But then if you are training in just about any sport or, or area with, say, a coach who believes you can exceed what you take to be your limitations, then you can begin to sort of instill the like, conditioned default of trying really hard, right? So I, I think there are probably things that you can do. Um, how do you approach, say, a, a new problem that you've set out for yourself? Because I know that you have, have explored some virgin territory when it comes to bouldering problems. Um, maybe first you could explain to people who, who don't rock climb or are familiar with it, like, what is bouldering? And then when you're tackling a new problem, like, what is your, what is your internal voice sound like when you're when you're tackling something that you know is probably going to be pushing your level a bit yeah so to start bouldering um in the realm of climbing is like power lifting as it relates to weight lifting or weight training so small very intense technically difficult pieces of terrain that you're climbing with no rope um and crash pads laid out underneath you mm-hmm. so you're not soloing uh doing something that's death defying you know, most of the time it's, you know, less than 15 feet off the ground. Um, so it's a, a very high intense pursuit in climbing as opposed to sport climbing or traditional climbing, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit longer, more endurance based. Uh, you know, for me, it, it's, I know that tenacity or the ability to persevere is something that's I'm in control of. And, you know, I was never the most talented athlete growing up. Uh, you know, I just, I, I always, I wrestled as a young guy and I didn't have the innate talent that a lot of my peers had, but I knew that I could work hard and I could do all these things in the off season and, and even during competition to, to, to help get me closer to be on a level competitive playing field as these other people. So I, I approach bouldering in a very similar sense. You know, I'm, I'm shorter. I have shorter arms. I'm probably a little heavier than the average boulder. What are, you, what are your dimensions, just I'm, for people wondering? So I'm five foot six. Uh, I have a negative two ape index. So it means my wingspan, my arms are five foot four. So I'm shorter, stubby arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I weigh you know, anywhere from like 160 to 165 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not heavy by any means, but in the realm of climbing, I'm a little bit heavier for my size. Yeah. So I, I feel I like 
I have focused. And, and, <laughs> I mean, and Giz is not obvious to people just based on the context. You're also, I mean, that's a lean. That's not a, a donuts and uh, Dr. Pepper 170. I've right? been trying to get my legs to be smaller so that I weigh less, <laughs> Tim. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so, you, so you, you have the, this variable, which is sort of training intensity and consistency, which is under your control. Yep. Unlike some of the sort of innate talent that other people might have, uh, and then if you are just from a from a psychological perspective, when you are getting ready to attempt, whether it's the first time or the fifth time, a very hard route, how do you prepare for that? Like in the in the minutes leading up to it, what does that look like? So in in the moment, if like before I'm going to give something like a red point attempt, like try to actually climb the the line. Uh, try to clear your head. I mean, it's a huge mental game when you get to the point where you've done all the moves, you're strong enough to do it. There's, there can be a big mental block. And I think a lot of athletes experience that, you know, kind of in the kind of higher echelons of performance. So I think clearing your brain and uh, not letting that be the, the limiting factor. Mm-hmm. I think leading up to that, uh, it's practicing grit and kind of that try hard in all of the structured training that I do leading up to that moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, fingerboarding is a way that you you can train your fingers, you know, your tendons, connective tissue to be stronger. Uh, you know, in every fingerboard workout, you know, trying to apply that level of grit, that try hard, you know, hang on things that might hurt my skin um, or just be very, you know, rigorous and tough on me. Uh, trying to put that same level of intensity into every training session, trying to get like high quality training, not just volume of training yep. and checking the boxes. Yeah, this is this is what I was hoping we'd we'd explore a bit because I mean repetition, like practice, does not make perfect. No, right? perfect yeah. practice makes you perfect. Right, and you know, I think a lot of a quote that I'm going to butcher the name. I need a classic scholar in the room, but Archilochus, I think, is one of these old. Uh, old names that is difficult to know how exactly, at least for me, how it was pronounced. But the uh, the the phrase is: we do not rise to the level of our hopes or expectations; we fall to the level of our training. And so, if you haven't stress inoculated, as you mentioned, uh, it's very difficult to execute when you're actually trying to push yourself to in sort of a performance rep. Right. So let, let's talk about clearing your mind. So practically, what does that look like? So a lot of people get wrapped up, right? They, they put in a ton of practice and then it's time to go out and perform. And, and you've no doubt seen this. And uh, I mean, we're going to segue to military shortly, but whether it's in sports, in any high performance situation, you see people who do really well in training and rehearsal and then they freeze. Right. And then you see people who are the opposite, who do really well under pressure, uh, and they may not in training be the standouts, but then when it comes to actual performance, for for any number of reasons, they are kind of in pole position. Um, so how do you clear your mind? So for me, the things that are the times where I've performed my best, I've, I've actually used visualization. Um, I, I have actually adopted that successfully. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it may not work for everybody, but I, I literally try to visualize myself climbing through all the movement that I know I've done. I've practiced in the past and I've successfully executed it and, uh, and, and watch myself climb through the entire boulder problem. Um, even to the point where 
you know, I will find myself moving my hands in the positions that they should be hitting each specific hold, um, you know, just grabbing the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I just recently, and like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to pursue a higher level of bouldering and I'm not by any means the strongest boulderer in the world. But you just recently, I, I had this kind of breakthrough experience on a really hard boulder problem for me. And uh, right before I did it, I, I, I had been visualizing literally the entire day mm. leading up to it. And then just sitting down and breathing, you know, a couple big deep breaths and just trying to like empty all other thoughts out of my brain. Mm. And uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to segue into how the military entered the picture in, in a moment. But what other what other physical feats are you proudest of? This could be military or it could be civilian. If, right. if, if if actually, let me put this a different different way because you're so understated. If someone else were to brag on your behalf, I might have to pull in some reinforcements here if if necessary. But <sighs> uh, what other physical feats, or uh, whether it's in competition or otherwise, are, are you are you proudest of? So the prelude to that is that I've surrounded myself with people that are better than me in every athletic pursuit that I've, you know, fallen in love with. Um, so some beyond climbing, I mean, climbing, I've surrounded myself with very talented people and very proud of some of the progression I've seen in that sport. Uh, prior to that, I, I got way into like longer distance running you know, I ran, you know, 50K, 50 milers, like a lot of trail races. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did my first 50 miler on the East Coast when I was at the Naval Academy um, with a handful of friends and, you know, didn't know what to expect. And, you know, that was a big accomplishment for me, you know, more mentally. You know, it wasn't that you were going super fast or you're going to win the race. It was just kind of persevering. It was the grit that you had to show through that. Mm-hmm. Um I've competed in some multi-sport races, like adventure racing back in the day. Uh, did a lot of like one-day, two-day, three-day races. Uh, raced in Eco Primal Quest uh, back in 2002 in Telluride, Colorado. What is that? It's uh, So Eco Challenge was made famous by Mark Burnett. And uh, I think it was developed after the Raid Galois. So all map and compass, a team of three or four people. Uh, and, and normally one person of the opposite sex, and it was all man-powered uh, movement over terrain, paddling, uh, hiking, uh, mountaineering, mountain biking, um, just puts you out in the middle of nowhere in like the most epic places in the world. And it was, it was sleep deprivation is factored in, and I think that's what drew me to it more than anything else. I mean, I knew I wanted to to go to Bud's and be a SEAL, and like I figured this was probably the best kind of train up for like mental toughness that I could do. So I got way into it when I was at school. So how did you end up becoming interested in becoming a Navy SEAL or being directed uh, towards that territory at all? I mean, how, how did that all start? You know, I, somebody mentioned uh, this this community within the military, the SEAL teams, when I was in like seventh grade. Uh, and before that, I knew nothing about, you know, the SEAL community. And I think I, I've always been really good at setting goals for myself and just working really hard to achieve these goals because I didn't have a lot of innate talent. And uh, I think I fixated on that as a really kind of almost unattainable goal 
when I was seven in seventh grade and, uh, you know, just latched onto it. I mean, I just wanted to achieve that. And I had a lot of people that were naysayers along the way that doubted my ability to go and do that. Um, but I knew that I was in control of my destiny. You know, I could put the structure together to achieve all the small goals that would lead up to, you know, ultimately, ultimately realizing that, that bigger goal. How did you end up having even the concept of structuring it in these, these incremental bites, taking this large goal and breaking it down? Is that something that your parents demonstrated? Is it something mentors or coaches demonstrated? Where did it come from? A book? I mean, where, where did that come from? Yeah. So my dad was, was instrumental in that, um, growing up. So my dad was a college football player, firefighter in the city of Chicago. Um, really like addicted to fitness, like really into like calisthenics and weightlifting got me into that when I was pretty young. And he, I I can visualize it right now. He had all these like motivational quotes written in like calligraphy up on the wall in the basement, uh, in Chicago. And he'd always, you know, you quote Vince Lombardi and, uh, and, and really push me to just try hard and, and mm. start working out because, you know, he was, he was all about discipline, you know, setting these goals. So I like, I, I probably embodied that because I was just in that environment with my dad and I looked up to him a lot. Yeah. Is, I mean, I would imagine with the weightlifting, I don't know. And you mentioned wrestling as well. I mean, at least for me, where a lot of the kind of methodical tracking began was with training and weight cutting and so on, because you wanted to have a training log of some type, right? To track, to track progress. Uh, so you have this, you have this dream that is kicked off in some way around seventh grade. When does it start to become a reality? You know, I think I went to the Naval Academy, you know, I was accepted to the Naval Academy, started down that path and super competitive from the Naval Academy to get a billet as an officer into the SEAL training pipeline. Um, so I think it started while... Billet I'm, is like a position? Yeah, or? like an, an opportunity. Like mm-hmm. you get one slot to go and and attempt the training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think at school, that's... It, it, I started to build this like really cool camaraderie, like a fraternity with the guys who were all competing um, for that finite number of spots into the SEAL pipeline. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I think back, I think I got, I got hooked on, on that brotherhood, like the fraternity that you had a bunch of guys that all aspired to do the same thing, all sacrificing, uh, to achieve that one goal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I would probably point back to, to that moment or that period in my life as kind of, that was when I really start seeing it manifest as reality. Is there any aspect of buds or any any part of the training slash vetting process that you and you expected would be most difficult, or that you were concerned about? I, I was always concerned about the cold. Uh, I'm a pretty thin guy. I don't have a lot of insulation in my body, and I remember going through some screening events at school and getting extremely cold. And uh, so that was something I you know it's probably in the back of my head is a, a big fear. Like, would I get too cold? Like, would my you know, my, my mind, you know, quit on me in that scenario because it starts to really test you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think beyond that, I I was never that good of a swimmer. Uh, I I have kind of an example when I was a a junior in high school, I was a Chicago park district lifeguard. 
um, on the lakefront at you know the shore of Lake Michigan, and they the senior guards used to make me wear a rescue buoy out when we'd go and do swims <laughs> because they thought I was going to drown. Uh, so I was a terrible swimmer. Uh, never swam until I had to, my dad actually was the one that told me you need to go get a job. So, uh, go be a lifeguard. It pays really well and you get to hang out at the beach. I'm like, great. Well, I don't know how to swim, so I need to figure that out. Uh, and then even at the Naval Academy, I mean, I, I think my senior year, I probably swam like four times (laughs) in preparation for buds. And thankfully, you put fins on after like the first week of buds and you do all your swimming with fins. So I was a fairly good finner, but I was a terrible swimmer. Uh, you mentioned uh, a term earlier that I think is is worth exploring a bit. That's stress inoculation. Uh, could you talk about, maybe give some examples of that and... Um, Maybe some, some, also some misconceptions. I mean, for instance, one that came up yesterday when we were having dinner was uh, cold exposure. Sure. Right? And I, I was actually, I've never really thought about it, but the counterintuitive aspect of that example, I think, is, is worth mentioning too. So what is stress inoculation and where do people sometimes get it wrong? Yes, I mean, in its simplest form, stress inoculation is just exposing yourself to you know, stressors through experience to get you, you more comfortable. Um, so you can inoculate yourself to stress in, in pretty much any environment that would impose it. Uh, and I think the example that we are talking about, the misconception uh, that we were discussing yesterday was cold exposure or uh, exposure to heat. You know, if you, you put yourself in cold water thinking that you're going to build up this uh, tolerance to the cold... I think it's actually it actually works against you. You you could be more susceptible to hypothermia. It can backfire. And then the same thing with hyperthermia. Yeah. You know, you get heat stroke once, you're gonna you're a, you could be a victim of heat stroke repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, actually ended up happening to me with heat specifically. Uh, I've never told our our mystery friend sitting here this before, but the uh, I was a subject. I volunteered to be an experimental subject in testing at Stanford, where they would. Uh, so I wanted, I wanted the data, right? I'd always been susceptible to heat, and I wanted some some hard numbers on how susceptible I was, or if I was, like what the actual problem was. And so they put in, uh, it's about as pleasant as it sounds, an anal probe, which is a like a, a to measure core temperature. So it's like a 18 inches long or something like that. And then uh, they had new technology, which is an esophageal probe. So you also had like an 18 inch probe going down your nose, down your throat to try to get close to your heart. And then they'd put you in full military gear with a weighted rucksack helmet and put you in a sauna on a uh, incline treadmill and just march you to heat exhaustion. <laughs> sounds awesome. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was it was about as as pleasant as as it sounds. But I ended up being more sensitive over time, which I didn't expect. Right? I thought, oh, well, this is going to be like building up a base suntan, and it just so happens it's not true for everything. Right? Uh, I, there's 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 someone who's uh, who may be a a a character in the story of stress inoculation in your exposure to that, I suppose, pun intended, who's, who's been on this podcast before. Uh, can you describe how you know Jocko Willink? So Jocko uh, and I served at SEAL Team 3 together. 
So when I was a, a new guy, he was the sister troop commander. Um, and he and his troop went to Ramadi that summer. And then we were deployed about 20 kilometers to the east of Ramadi. Uh, so I worked up with, with Jocko. And then Jocko took over uh, our training detachment on the West Coast for the SEAL team. So I, when I was a platoon commander, I took my platoon through the entire training cycle under Jocko's uh, guys. So he, he was the, the individual that was you know, charged not only with running training for everybody, but specifically uh, vetting and mentoring the officers that were going to be taking you know, deployable elements into combat. So you you are there. There are a whole slew of reasons why I was eager to have you on the podcast. You've been highly successful in multiple fields. You're well respected in multiple fields. Uh, certainly, as as a physical performance specimen, um, <laughs> as as the snake eater put it, sort of ir- irritatingly uh, well rounded, and uh, also one hell of a nice guy, which makes it harder to 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 find that bothersome. Uh, I should say, but and it's more of an end, really, because I think it's so common. Um, you've had some challenges since leaving the military that I thought would be worth getting into. Uh, and I wanted to sort of paint a picture of a lot of your accomplishments first, because I wanted to establish that context. But can, can you talk just, and we'll, of course, dig into a lot of the details, but uh, there have been a lot of highlights along the way, but what did you experience after the military? Uh, so I left active duty service in 2013, um, after several deployments into combat and, uh, and everything was actually great initially. I, I left because of my family. Um, my wife and I have been with each other since high school and we had just had our daughter in 2012. And that was for me, the catalyst that was, uh, ultimately going to you know, help me make the decision to choose my family and, and get out of the military at that point. So I uh, transitioned into the private sector, um, initially in a commercial real estate brokerage, which is, you know, super high stress. I wasn't making any money whatsoever. And, uh, and like kind of the polar opposite of the SEAL teams in the, in the military combat u- units in general, I was, I was, by myself. I was kind of alone on an island, responsible for my own performance. I didn't have any teammates to look to. There was, you know, little to no camaraderie. Um, and, you know, I kind of carried on with that career until uh, we started the, you know, the current company that, that I'm running, um, you know, Sunscreen Company. And, uh, you know, I'd say it, it was probably 2017. So four years elapsed um, before I really, I kind of had a moment, I guess a moment of clarity for myself where I realized like I, I wasn't, I just didn't feel myself. And, uh, you know, it's difficult at times to put it into words, but I, I remember my family was away on a trip and I decided to stay home to work, um, as was the normal for me at that point. And, uh, I just kind of was feeling total apathy, uh, you know, for things that I really find passion in, like climbing, like didn't had zero interest in it, would find myself driving to the gym and sitting in my truck for like an hour, like not wanting to, to go in and do something that I, I normally love, um, was becoming a little bit more aware of, 
kind of feelings of anger, um, agitation, edginess uh, in conversations with people. I, you know, I'd be in a normal kind of one-on-one meeting with somebody and, and with a really nice person. And there's no reason why I should be feeling angry or, or irritated. And I, I would have to excuse myself from meetings and didn't want to interact with them. And it was like 180 out from my normal personality. I mean, like I, uh, yeah, I was just very confused. You know, I've always been a very even keel, nice person, you know, don't look for conflict, try to, you know, I walk away from fights. I mean, normally if I, I mean, I was the guy that was just very even keel and even tempered. And, uh, um, I would just find myself getting just very angry all the time. And I think it was bleeding into my personal life with my, my wife and my kids, you know, just no, uh, no ability to cope with kind of distractions in the house. I just felt overwhelmed almost on edge all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I got to a point where I, I just didn't know how to fix it, you know? So I, you know, I talked to some people and just asked them if they've felt that way. And so, so former SEALs. Yeah. Maybe some buddies of mine, like guys that had exited the military at that point. And, you know, some guys shared, you know, blood work, um, and testosterone count as, you know, potentially that's an issue. So I remember going in and get a full, getting a full battery of blood work done. And, uh, you know, my testosterone was fine. It was like very healthy. And I remember kind of having a one-on-one with the physician that I was seeing and described everything that I, I kind of described in brief just now. And, uh, and they, they framed it as depression. And I, I said, that's crazy. I'm not like, I'm not depressed. Like, I just don't feel myself. There, there has to be something else wrong. I'm not locking myself in a dark room. And I, you know, I'm just, that's, that's not me. And, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, insistent in a way on trying to put me on a serotonin drug on, on an antidepressant. Yeah. That SSRI. Yeah. Correct. And I, uh, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, but I just, for me personally, I just didn't want to, uh, I, I looked at it as like a bandaid fix. I just, I didn't think it was going to help me, um, get back to the person that I knew I was. So I just, I tried to go out and find other things, something else to snap me out of it besides like, you know, 40 ounces of coffee every single day to, to try to like wake me up and actually get me motivated. So at that point, uh, I mean, how long were you in that wandering, searching, sort of coping, but not having returned to normal you? Like, if, and it doesn't have to be exact, but like for, for how long were you on the search for, for some type of, of fix before you found anything that helped? You know, it, it probably took me, you know, six months or so. Yeah. Of trying to, I mean, it was kind of a frustrating process of trying to vet the blood work and, you know, just see if it passed, see if I would just get back to normal and I wasn't getting back to normal. Um, and I, you know, I, I ultimately found uh, something called uh, personalized repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's a mouthful. Uh, I, I kind of stumbled upon it by accident. I, I had connected with a doctor in San Diego that had been doing it for depression. Um, and 
what is the acronym for that? I mean, it's a form of TMS. So it's PRTMS. Or PRTMS. It, yeah, just a very focused form of uh, TMS. You know, they did an EEG uh, initially to kind of look at your brainwave activity and then treat frontal lobe with some magnetic pulses to try to, I guess, like retune the piano. Yep. And uh, I talked to some veterans. I actually talked to uh, a Marine uh, and then a, a couple SEALs or former SEALs, you know, off active duty. This was all kind of post-active duty service um, where it worked for them. I mean, they felt like it, it kind of snapped them back into the person that they were so they could get on a healthier track. I mean, because ultimately the way I, I looked at it is, hey, I, I just need something to make me feel myself where I can sleep again, where I could start eating healthy again, where I can exercise or actually have a passion to exercise again, because those are like the core foundational pillars that have been, I mean, that's, that's been my foundation. That's the reason, you know, I've been able to stay healthy. It's because of my diet and sleep and exercise, but I just, I need something to kind of like help push me in that direction. Yeah, it's, um, you know, what you're describing, certainly I, I've never been in, in the military, but for people who've listened to the podcast for a long time or, or read any of the recent books, I mean, I've uh, had many extended bouts with, certainly in retrospect, what I would call depression and uh, seems to be a family, there seems to be a software component, <laughs> like what I came preloaded with just has... <laughs> maybe a few unusual lines of code in it. Uh, but there, there's also the, 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 the large behavioral piece. And one of, the, one of the trickier aspects of, for some people, and this, was, this has been true for me as well, is that if, if humans are kind of reward and punishment, sort of incentive-driven machines, if the reward that you received from activities that were good for you, right, in part, the the joy of rock climbing let's just say uh disappears right so you have this like anhedonia this inability to feel joy um the normal kind of feedback loops that that help encourage you to follow these beneficial patterns of behavior can kind of slip through your fingers sure right because you're just you're not getting the payoff you're not yeah. getting the initial drive and you're not getting the payoff so the the PRTMS uh, is really interesting. This is something uh, that actually came up not too long ago, very briefly, with a physicist who was on this podcast, but we didn't get into it because he had no personal exposure to it. He was just very interested in the science. Yeah. How uh, how quickly did you see a response to that? It's crazy. It was like immediate for me. Uh, so I'll I'll frame it. I I walked into this this office, uh, and I was in a terrible mood, like very antisocial, just at a very low spot. Um, and, uh, I did actually was very agitated with the guy who was kind of bringing me in and asking me the questions, didn't even want to deal with him. And, uh, they didn't eat G and, and sat me down and I went through my first battery of treatment. And in, I guess the way that I, and I reacted to it, I've talked to other guys maybe that didn't have the same type of reaction, but, it was almost like a sense of being caffeinated. Hmm. Like when you drink, you haven't drank coffee for three weeks and then all of a sudden you have, you know, a double shot of espresso. Just feel like super on point uh, and kind of a, wa a wave of calm where like all those feelings of agitation and anger like subsided. And it, it was 
crazy. Like I, I did not expect that to happen. Um, and I had to back it up. I mean, after, you know, it would fade. And then I, I was going in pretty much five days a week for like 30 minutes for six weeks or so. Um, and then I was good for a while, probably for like six plus months. Okay. So the flywheel was spinning at that point. Like you had enough momentum. I know this is metaphorically speaking, but at that point, the durability you needed to, so you had five, roughly say five times per week for, what did you say? How many weeks? About six weeks Six or so. weeks. And at that point, then the durability of effect seemed to be about six months. You know what? It did it. Like it took effect and then immediately, you know, I started sleeping better. Sleep is the root of everything. I think as it relates to at least my experience with this mental health, yep. um, as I slept better, uh, I just felt better. The apathy went away. I was more excited to go, you know, climb more excited to spend time with my, my wife and my two kids. Uh, and then it was this positive feedback loop where it just kind of kicked, it jump started me into a track that I had been on, but I had just fallen off of. Yeah. The, the, the uh, it strikes me that you needed the, in, in a way, the, the reboot or the tuning Sure. So that you could have a sort of quote unquote normal window within which then you could make the decisions you would have made normally. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it right? like, the, sense. like the, the, the PRTMS doesn't doesn't f- it doesn't make the longer term regular behavioral decisions for you, but it, it opens a window in which you can make those decisions for yourself, yeah. which is true of a lot of, of some of the, the treatments that I find more interesting for this is that they're not sort of causal in and of themselves. It's not one and done, but right. it, it opens an, a window of opportunity within which you can make decisions with uh, sort of your mind in a better in, it, in a more focused place. Yeah. Uh, Since so, so the, the, you mentioned, you mentioned sleep and uh, this is another variable that has just become over time more and more interesting to me. Uh, I mean, certainly you're no stranger to sleep deprivation and we can certainly talk yep. about that. Uh, and there were, I mean, long periods of time where I used stimulants and caffeine to self-medicate and it works for a while. <laughs> or at least it makes you feel like you're being productive uh, for a while. Uh, what uh, what types of systems or habits have you built around sleep, or uh, are there any other tools or resources that you found helpful for sleep? Uh, yeah, so trying to get sunlight in the morning. Um, I, I you know going through the the TMS battery I mean that was like a, a very positive habit that was formed because of that treatment you know the doc said I need you to get at least 30 minutes of direct morning blue light exposure um, to kind of kick your I guess your circadian rhythm into uh, into alignment so you actually get tired you start to uh, you know produce the the chemicals internally that you need to, to actually fall asleep and get restful sleep so that was a big one I, I started I was cognizant of how much time uh, I did not spend in direct sunlight, you know, with no glass in between me and the, and the blue light. Mm-hmm. You know, once I started actually uh, looking at that, I would, you know, make a point of getting outside and, and, and doing that. Um, 
I don't know if this, it, it has impacted like positive quality of sleep, but I, I, I drink a lot more water. Mm-hmm. Uh, every morning I drank 32 ounces of water, no fail. Um, sometimes I don't want to, but I do. And I've, I've become more cognizant of just being more hydrated. Uh, I've supplemented with vitamin D, even though I'm, I'm getting sunlight, uh, that seemed to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ca- caffeine intake. I mean, I, I love coffee. It's, it, I think it's, it's an amazing, uh, performance enhancing drug as it relates to climbing. Uh, it's probably the best, like best that I've found. Yeah. Like drink a cup of coffee and you just focus and you perform well. Uh, I've gotten into a habit of not drinking it later in the day <laughs> and not drinking it at seven or eight o'clock at night. Well, I was going to say, I don't want to take us totally off the rails, but one of the things you mentioned uh, during lunch that I, I, I never would have thought of in a million years, you're talking about heading out to climb in the middle of the night with headlamps. Sure. And I was like, what? Why would you do that? And you're talking about the temperature and how your skin is just tighter, more resilient. You can climb more effectively. Way when better to climb in the cold. cold. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so I can I can see uh, that being maybe not the ideal time to down a whole lot of coffee. And I definitely had fallen victim to drinking yeah. coffee at eleven o'clock at night. You know, I want to. We're going to keep going, so you can think of uh, any other things that might have helped as it relates to sleep. But the sun exposure first thing in the morning. Uh, and not having anything between you, even if it is, say, panes of glass, sure. is something that a number of guests on this podcast uh, have mentioned. I only thought about it right now because it's been a while as being instrumental in completely uh, changing the trajectory of their physical life. Like Rick Rubin, legendary music producer, uh, has a very similar practice, like at least 20 or 30 minutes of direct sunlight every morning. Uh, that doesn't mean it has to be sunny out also. Like it can be overcast. No. It just means being outside. Uh, and it sh- it shortly thereafter, al- along with other things, I mean, he lost a hundred plus pounds, right? But that was sort of the, the first domino, which was a daily ingredient. First thing upon waking that made a huge difference. Uh, when do you stop drinking caffeine during the day or have, what are the rules you've set for yourself? So it's been recently, it's been better. I actually have fallen into drinking butter coffee, mm-hmm. uh, first thing in the morning and I don't drink coffee after that. Mm-hmm. So I might have that at like 8am and then it kind of has forced in like an intermittent fast, like a short term fast where I feel focused throughout the day and don't need to drink coffee in the afternoon. I would feel you know, prior to that, I, I would feel kind of this afternoon, like energy dump and like feel like I need to drink more coffee to go climb or do something, you mm-hmm. know, be, be productive. Um, so that's helped. So I try to cut it out completely. You know, after my morning coffee, I'm not touching that's it a, again. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I've noticed, I, I, th- I think this caffeine piece is really key for a lot of people, including myself. And uh, you know, I've noticed, for instance, there are certain things we're going to talk about this that are sort of harbingers or like the canary in the coal mine as it relates to possible periods of depression or apathy or anhedonia, all these things. And that for me, at least the caffeine can precipitate a lot of it, right? Because if for whatever reason I'm consuming too much caffeine too late, not too high a quantity, what does that start to affect? It starts to affect sleep. Even if you're in bed for eight hours, you may have very disrupted sleep. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this vicious cycle that tends to 
exacerbate all of the things that you're trying to avoid. Yeah. Right. And uh, so, so for me, also combining, say, extended uh, exercise at some point in, say, the afternoon gives me a uh, a break from my habitual caffeine consumption window, right? So, yep. and if that makes any sense, no, like, it because, definitely does. Because as as a as someone who's effectively worked by himself, which I think is problematic in a lot of ways psychologically, for twenty plus years, it's like okay, well, I go to a coffee shop, go to a restaurant, and a lot of these places, it's an endless cup of coffee, or it's and endless refills with ice tea, right? Yeah, yeah. So. And so you end up, it's like okay, over. A handful of hours, at least I would, I drink like 15 cups of iced tea or like seven cups of coffee. Strong. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I realized (laughs) at one point I went to this, uh, I did this, this retreat at one point where I had to dial down my coffee and get to the point where I wouldn't have these withdrawal headaches. And then I came back and just went straight back into my normal routine of like inadvertently consuming six cups in a day. And I thought to myself, holy shit, like, is this, was this my normal? Right. No wonder I was so, like, anxious and had so much trouble sleeping. And so for me, this is a long roundabout way of saying you can, you can use all the meditation apps and take all the supplements and do all these things to decrease your, your anxiety <laughs> and improve your sleep. Or you can just have, like, one or two cups of coffee in the morning and and not have sex. Yeah. (laughs) I would much rather perform a little bit like at a lower intensity in the evening when I work out. Yeah. Then suffer the consequences of having caffeine that late in the day. Yeah, a lot of uh, I, I, I like I mentioned earlier, I'm not uh, former military, but I've spent a lot of time with former military and a lot of guys seem to experience this tired and wired phenomenon where they'll they'll try to go to sleep and then suddenly they're wide awake. Yep. And they have this uh, surge of cortisol like late at night as opposed to early in the morning when you're evolutionarily designed to have this surge of cortisol so that it liberates glycogen, you get a spike in blood glucose and then bam, you're awake. Uh, and some folks, and I don't know if you've ever bumped into... Um, uh, Kirk Parsley, he does a lot of work with guys. And I know like, Kirk. You do, yes. yeah. So he's he's worked on some interesting concoctions for sure. sleep, and you know, phosphatidylserine uh, is not a replacement for cutting back on your caffeine consumption, but can help blunt that cortisol release. Yeah. Prior to sleep, uh, anything else that you found helpful for 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 sleep or rest? Um, so, funny enough, I uh, I tried a supplement, a magnesium supplement called calm Calm. (laughs) it had actually worked for me uh very well i mean like i would drink it at in the evening Mm -hmm. and i would start to yawn you know and actually feel like i wanted to go to bed and that was such like a before i kind of went through that initial battery of of tms and kind of getting myself back on track like i could i don't think i i couldn't recall the last time i like i actually yawned and wanted to go to sleep like I would force myself to go to sleep because that was just what I was supposed to do when it was really yeah, dark yeah. and my wife was in bed and the kids were asleep, you know, and I, I'm sitting there wired, like working or just laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling. Yeah. So it was, yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, the TMS definitely like it, I'm like, man, I'm tired. You know? And then I, I turned to that magnesium supplement and it actually, I, I thought that was pretty helpful. It's uh, one of the biggest bang for your buck supplements 
for sleep that I've, I've come across. And there are a million variations of magnesium, threonate, uh, citrate. And it was, there, there are a million different varieties, but the, the, the Calm product's pretty good. It does have a strong flavor to it, generally. The, the raspberry lemonade, I think, yeah, is the one that I'm Yeah, it's with. got a strong flavor to it, but uh, it, it really does help with sleep. Yeah. And for people who are struggling, that that's uh, potentially worth experimenting with. I will add a caveat to that, then uh, maybe I'm speaking specifically to you, my fellow Americans. More is not necessarily better with magnesium. And if you overdo magnesium, uh, there's a increased likelihood of disaster pants. So... Just uh, follow your <laughs> follow your label directions so you don't foul out. Uh, would be a pro tip. What other rules or practices have you built into your life to either keep? Well, let me ask ask the question. So you you go through the PRTMS, you instill these habits. Have you had any recurring uh, bouts of challenges with what you might? term apathy or depression or has that gone away entirely no absolutely you have had yeah it's not an end-all be-all there's no magic pill yeah um you know you know what has been i guess the most impactful part of that whole experience um you know beyond the treatment and i probably even more so than the treatment you know the the first you know period of time that i went in for the tms uh, I ran into like three or four guys that I hadn't seen in years from the teams, like in the waiting room, you know, in a totally discreet building. Like you, you would never run into anybody there. Yeah, right. It's not if there. There wasn't there. a Starbucks in the lobby. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the lobby conversations with, you know, you know, my boys, guys that I, I, I served with in the teams, I hadn't seen in forever, uh, w- was killer. I mean, like, people we were in a place i mean i think part of it is like we have mutual respect and trust and loyalty to each other and you were in kind of a safe place with safe people to share like very very similar experiences and like that shared experience and just talking about it was probably the most like beneficial part of the entire thing Hmm. um because i had a i had three or four guys immediately that i could reach out to uh, and talk to as soon as I felt myself starting to slip. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, and it also kind of served for me as a, it was kind of that shove in, uh, in the back to, to open up to some people that, that I was close to that, that weren't, you know, people I served with in the military, you know, my, my wife, um, who actually opened up to me and told me that, you know, this wasn't something new. She had noticed it for years and it was probably a point of contention and, uh, and trouble in our marriage from time to time that we'd had to struggle through. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, I mean, because of people listening, of, of all the people who are listening to this, there are going to be people who are like listening with the fascination of watching like an exotic animal in a, in a zoo where they're like, I've never experienced that, but this is interesting. Then there are the people who've experienced it directly yeah. in some way, uh, whether it's just down periods, kind of extended funks or clinical depression or really extreme varieties of that, which, which we can talk about. And then you have the people who may have not experienced it directly, but they've been uh, affected right? yeah. because someone, a, a close friend, a family member, what was, if you don't, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, what no. was it like for your wife having this experience with you I or, think f- or vicar- I mean, being with you while you're going through it? 
Yeah, I think uh, probably very frustrating for her for years. Um, I think probably a lot of our arguments and, and not, you know, we love each other. We have a very healthy marriage and, you know, we have two wonderful kids. Uh, but, you know, we got, you get into arguments, right? And I think I, you know, there was probably a lot of frustration because she saw me differently. I mean, she even, you know, her own words at times were, you know, you're, you're different. You're, you're not the same person that I married. Um, and I think part of that was probably the separation, right? I mean, there was long periods of time, both in training and then deployment where we just didn't see each other. And you do that repeatedly. I mean, I did it three times. There's guys, you know, from our community and, and other branches of the service that have done it, you know, 12 times, 15 times. And, uh, you know, you know, I thought I knew myself and I, I'm like, I didn't change. I'm the same person, but she kind of watched this and was just frustrated because it was like, I, you know, I couldn't see it. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and see the changes that she saw because she would be removed from me for, you know, eight months. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it's like not seeing your, your six month old for two months and the little guy or girl has changed considerably, right? Because you were removed from them and they went through this, this period of transition or change. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, I, I mean, I actually have, I feel terrible that she had to go through it. Uh, and I didn't recognize it. And I think part of it is I just, I probably was in denial. Um, I mean, I, this is probably another whole, uh, channel of conversation, but I mean, I, I think society, especially the community that I came from, you know, being in the military and the SEAL teams, like I, I saw it as weakness, right? I didn't even want to think about, like, I don't have a mental health issue. I mean, in society, it's like, it's painted in such a negative light Yeah. that, you know, I did everything in my power to A, ignore it, or B, uh, just pretend that it wasn't, wasn't there. Like, yeah. don't be, not be honest with myself because I don't want to show weakness. Yeah, totally. And and it's it's worth noting that this is not a small issue. Right? I mean, whether and by by this we could be talking about depression, but we could talk, be, be talking about sort of mental health related problems and challenges in say the U.S. as a whole. Certainly globally, but uh, I, I'm more familiar with the the sort of state of affairs in the U.S. where it's something like 20 to 23 is, it are, is the range I hear most often. Veterans commit suicide is it daily. So I mean, far more loss of life uh, sort of after service than during. Yeah, it's uh, terrible. Act, active service, and you know, last year if we're if we're taking it outside of the if we're taking it outside of the context of the military, but still there's a huge overlap uh, because a lot of returning vets are prescribed, say, synthetic opioids and so on. I mean, you have more synthetic opioid-related deaths, I want to say, in 2017 than all the casualties of the Vietnam War, yeah. right, when you put it in perspective. And uh, these are common issues. Right? They're sure. very common, but the illusion of the, uh, the perceptual illusion that's created because... Uh, relatively speaking, few people talk about it publicly. Right, is that you? If you're feeling depressed or fill in the condition that is stigmatized, you feel maybe uniquely flawed, or you don't want to admit that it's an issue because you think you're one in a thousand people yep. who would possibly have it, and it's just not the case. 
go get a pill and fix it so you don't have to talk to anybody about it. Yeah. And, you know, in some cases, the, you know, the medications can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Sure. Um, but um, at the same time, I think that it's, it's one tool in the toolkit. Right. Uh, and a lot of people will be non-responders or very short-term responders to some of the medications. So some of these alternative tools are, are I think, very, very important. Uh, so what are, what are some of the signs? Because and we were chatting about this last night where, yeah. where I was saying, you know, in my mind, as someone who's seen family members uh, really uh, affected by, say, depression specifically, and friends, certainly. I mean, my best friends, uh, just, again, to broaden things a little bit so people realize the pervasiveness of this. It's like one of my uh, best friends in high school offed himself by the time before he graduated from college. Uh, best friend from Long Island died of a fentanyl overdose. You know, uh, aunt recently died of alcohol and Percocet about a year ago, overdose. And you know, two of my best friends in college killed themselves within a few years of graduation. And these are, these are like fancy, I went to some fancy schools. Like that's not, that shouldn't happen. And so it shows that like these issues also like do not discriminate, right? Because right. in part, I think they're a byproduct of the human condition, but also a lot of modern societal factors, right? So like these things don't care how fast you are. They don't care how athletic you are. They don't care how, how much or how little money you have. They don't care what race you are. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's part of the reason I care so much. And to, to wind back to what I was going to ask, because I think it's important, um, and as, as context last night, I was saying that there are, in terms of people who are directly affected by this, there are people who will end up at some point experiencing say, depression or chronic anxiety or something that just feels off, right? They don't feel themselves and they don't know how to get back yep. to themselves. But there are the people who haven't yet experienced that. There are the people who are in the middle of it, sort of in the trough of sorrow, like there's this, this period of maybe despair, despondency, apathy. And then there are the people who are in a good place currently, but who dip in and out. Right. So you mentioned like when you start to see sort of symptoms yeah, or like the, the telltale signs, like oh, a storm is brewing on the horizon. What are those for you? Well, so I think the the people that have experienced it and are willing to talk about it and share, maybe even unsolicited, you know, with people that they know, care about, trust. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest um, things that we can do to kind of help those people that maybe are ashamed of it, mm -hmm. um, see it as weakness. Yeah. Because it, it, I mean, that for me, I mean, it helped me open up and I've had some pretty gnarly people from the teams that I look up to open up, you know, yeah. after having that kind of shared conversation of experiences. Um, so I think that's, that would be a huge part of it is just, you know, the people that are brave enough to share it and not feel like they're exposing themselves as somebody that's weak is, is mm -hmm. a big thing. Um, you know, the, the symptoms are different for so many, for, for different people, yeah, right? for you. So for me personally, uh, you know, uh, frustration and agitation are probably like the two core kind of telltale signs. Uh, so for instance, Tim, and you and I would be talking to each other yeah. and you might not even be talking over me or interrupting me, but I, I will 
stop almost as if I'm like, I'm irritated that I'm not getting my thoughts out fast Mm. enough. I'm not, uh, I can't kind of finish my train of thought and, uh, and I become visibly agitated and irritated. Mm. And my, you know, my brother-in-law that spends a lot of time with me at our, our company, um, he's, he's been really good at picking up on it. I mean, he's actually will be in conversations where I know I'm not feeling myself and I might not even, I might, well, I'll say I'm not feeling myself. I have not even realized that I'm falling into a bad spot and he'll pull me aside after a meeting and he'll say, Hey man, I, you just, you, you should take off. Just relax. Like I got your back. Like you don't have to be here right now. Hmm. And, and I think it's because he's recognized that pattern. Yeah. And it's going to be people that are closest to you, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I, you, you remind me of, of something just because, uh, uh, I feel like we have some maybe shared uh, DNA might be put. I mean, as a species, obviously, but the the, the point I'm making is like I am not able to do one tenth of the things you're able to do, but I do have some shared history in terms of experience with these things, right? And if having a teammate like your brother-in-law mm-hmm. to flag things when your self-awareness is kind of dimmed is really valuable. And you don't have to wait for like a guardian angel to fall out of the sky. You can go to your friends and say, look, I just want to, if I could ask you for a favor, I'm, I will, I will not get upset. Maybe I will a little bit, but I'm giving you permission in advance because you're my friend. Like if you spot any of these things or you think I'm really not being myself, please bring it up. Yeah. I like encourage the people closest to you to do that. Uh, because they will, you know, it's sort of like a, having a, a, someone who's who's specially trained to diagnose certain conditions that you are unable to see yourself. Yeah, uh, it's very very valuable to have have those people. So frustration and agitation, the, the biggest ones for sure. Big, yeah. So for me, just uh, for people out there, I mean, this is and this is something I've had to learn over time. Is like many. Uh, many, let's just say at least three or four days of continuous fatigue, even though I appear to be getting enough sleep yeah. is another one. And the, the, the unhelpful response to that is just to say, fuck it. I'm going to double down. Let me More have four <laughs> triple espressos right. and just power through whatever this is, which magnifies the problem. Right? Your it, sleep's it, wonderful then. Yeah, then your sleep's yeah. fantastic and it gets a lot better. That's that's sarcasm. So uh, kind of flagging that and realizing the world's not going to end if you need to take like three hours uh, yeah. to go for a long walk or to what, what I will usually try to do is kind of work up uh, one historical mistake that I've made is if we're looking at, say, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You've got physical safety, shelter, and all this stuff down at the bottom, food, and then it goes all the way up to self-actualization. Uh, I found it often unhelpful to try to sit down with a journal and figure out like the existential underpinnings of why I'm feeling off. It's like, no stupid, like sunlight, <laughs> right? Simple stuff. Simple stuff, right? Like sunlight. Maybe you get too grumpy if you try what everyone seems to be doing, like intermittent fasting. So you should probably, maybe you should just have a meal when you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Like like, let's like rather than trying to sort of unravel some Gordian knot of like 
philosophical complexity in your head, which you think is going to solve your problems. Maybe you just need like a handful of macadamia nuts and a cold fucking shower. And yeah. like, that's actually pick what, it up the next day. Yeah. And uh, so it's creating space for that, right. In response to the fatigue, but having that as a red flag and also trying to train people around me or ask people around me, whether it's family members, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever to flag that. Well, I think it brings up the, the importance of a strong community. Yeah. You know, not, it might not just be your spouse or your, uh, you know, your family member or your friend, like finding community in something else is a great kind of, uh, second line of defense yeah. or even first line of defense. I mean, I spend a lot of time, you know, climbing and training with people. Um, I probably spend as much time with them as I do at work at you know, periods of my life. Yeah. And these are, these are, uh, I, I should also, uh, suggest to folks because I've, I've voluntarily self isolated a lot yep. hi- historically. That's just been like, okay, if it's my problem, it's my problem. I don't want to be a burden. I also don't want to be embarrassed. So I'm going to isolate and sort this out myself. Sometimes that works. A lot of the time it backfires and just, uh, exacerbates the problem. So you can, when you're talking about support systems, I, I, I know because I have been this person that a lot of people out there are like, that's great, but mm-hmm. what if like I live by myself, I work by myself, I don't have that support structure. You can actually sort of rent friends and support structure. What I mean by that <laughs> is that, uh, as one example, humans are weird creatures and like we're not all rational actors even though a lot of economists would love us to be like rational robots like doing our various things it's often not the case and and humans for instance will work a lot harder to avoid losing a hundred dollars than they will to earn a hundred dollars right and so you can this is something i've done which is pre-book group activities whether that's like uh a dance class or a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class or fill in the blank, like some type of group activity, pay for it in advance so that you're going to feel like a schmuck if, uh, and you're going to have that loss aversion. And you've just, you've, you've stacked the deck in such a way that makes it more likely you will not self isolate. Right. And, And then you can create that structure. If you don't have it plug and play ready to go, if you don't have like five people around you, who are immediately available, you can, it is something you can engineer is what, yeah. I'm, what I'm trying to say. I mean, I'm lucky in that regard. I mean, I have, I have people that I've surrounded myself with that, that love me and care about me. Um, and I know that's not the case with everybody. So now, nonetheless, you were at one point with the commercial real estate, it sounds like sort of lone wolfing it. Sure. Right? And even though you had family and so on, you felt isolated yeah. at times. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I isolated myself too. Yeah. So how how have you corrected that? What what steps have you taken to correct that? Well, I mean, I, I think at the time I was rationalizing that I had to work really hard to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. So I, I was literally, I left the military to be with my family, yet I was ripping myself away from my family um, under the 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 guise of I'm I'm doing this for you guys. Right. Uh so I think it was it was having to to man up and realize that it's a cop out. You know, I, I was pretending like I was it was easier for me just to focus on work yeah. than 
to invest in my family, invest in those people that care about me. Mm-hmm. So, so this, this makes me want to return to a question that I would imagine some people have who are listening to this, which is, why did you suddenly have this this apathy and this depression? Like, what were the causal factors? Like, we're talking about how to address it, but like, why yeah. did you go from having none of that as part of your history to suddenly having that yeah. experience? Like, what do you think contributed to that? So, I mean, it's a multiple factor situation, right? Yeah. I, uh, you know, you can point to kind of the the stress, right? Chronic sleep deprivation during military service. Um, I, you know, I did have exposure to, to blast, you know, I was in two IED strikes, like vehicle IED strikes um, in 2006. And then, you know, as a member of a SEAL element overseas, we were explosively breaching. So, you know, that concussive element may have had something to do with kind of this later term. In, in terms of like TBI, like traumatic brain injury? Yeah, I mean, I think all that stuff. I mean, I mean, lack of sleep is a TBI right. in and of itself. You don't have to be exposed to an IED blast to have yeah. a TBI. I mean that uh, um, just repetitive small concussions. I mean, pro athletes, football players, hockey players, you know, have CTE, which is a form of TBI um, from repeated concussions, you know, both mass major and minor. Yeah. Right. So I think that that all contributed to it. Um, But I think the thing, the most common thread that I've picked up, in conversations with other buddies of mine that have transitioned and have, have felt similar things is this, this kind of loss of community, like loss of brotherhood, like loss of purpose, uh, you know, losing the identity of, of being a member of this team of people that love and care about you and have your back no matter what. And I mean, will give their life, you know, to protect yours. I mean, it's like, like really heavy, right? I mean, that's the reason, you know, when we lose a guy overseas, I mean, I'm, yeah, I can see I, it. I, I mean, I get, I, I give like a physical reaction to it is like the, the, the pure, like I call it love now and I never use the word love either, Tim, like I, and most of my life until recently, I, 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 I just rarely use the word love, never told guys that I served with that I loved them. Um, and I've, I've tried to make a point of, of saying that more often because like you have this deep sense of love and then all of a sudden I transition and, and it's gone Yeah. and I don't have any, I mean, you know, I have my wife and I have my kids and I love them and they love me, but like, I don't have that brotherhood anymore. And, and I've talked to more guys that like they go, you go through this transition, whether it's at retirement or five years into a, a career in the military and and you miss it. It's like this void in your life. And I think that that is probably, it's probably one of the biggest contributing factors to kind of me going through this, this, you know, frame it as depression or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's taken, it's taken some years of being kind of introspective and under trying to like ask the why yeah. to get to that conclusion. But you know, it's, surrounding myself with more people that I do consider like one of my boys, like a brother that I love and they love me, Mm. um, you know, both at work in kind of my new life in this, you know, in pursuit of entrepreneurship. Um, but also kind of reconnecting with guys that I served with. I mean, I've, I've probably reconnected with more 
buddies from the teams uh, in the last two years than I, oh. I had done in the four years prior to that. This, this is worth spending a little bit of time on. Uh, one of the things that has helped me quite a bit when I'm feeling, like seeing the storm on the horizon, like spotting some of the symptoms or having people point out the symptoms to me, or I shouldn't say the symptoms, like the the telltale signs, right? <laughs> that that uh, something might be coming, which you can sometimes kind of head off at the pass. I mean, it's not inevitable that when you spot something coming, it has to arrive in full, at least in my experience. And I haven't had, uh, I would say, like I used to have probably two dep- major extended depressive episodes a year, something like that. And I haven't had anything that I would characterize as a major depressive episode probably in the last four or five years. So like there are there are levers you can pull and systems you can put in place that work uh, really effectively. Uh, and you know, one of them for me, and this ties back to what you were just saying, has been when I'm unsure of, and I'm, I'm looking at it through a slightly different lens, but practically I think they're very similar. When I'm unsure of what to do to get myself back to normal, uh, reaching out to old friends or mentors to say thanks for something, right? Yeah. Like somebody from college you were really close to or someone from high school you were really close to, childhood, a former coach, a former professor, whoever it is, could be anyone, a family member you haven't talked to in a few years, right? And just reaching out to reconnect and say thanks for something or to tell them that you love them or whatever it might be um, has a real reach tethering effect yeah that is is really grounding and the fact of the matter is like what we take to be normal right now in most modern industrialized countries and i'm not saying there hasn't been a lot of good that has come from uh, globalization and industrialization i mean uh, if you read stephen pinker's uh i think it's angels of our better nature a lot of this becomes clear like we are we are living in some respects in a golden age with respect to all sorts of of societal problems and forms of violence and so on that were much more prevalent in pretty much every historical era up to now. That having been said, uh, the nature of uh, like hominid cohabitation has sort of been fractured in the last century to a point where the, the what we take as normal, which is this uh, default isolation and at, at most nuclear family sort of cohabitation is, is pretty abnormal. Like it's sort of like the, the, the last page in a 700 page book that chronicles human evolution. Right. And uh, so, so if you want to take, so in, in a sense, like feeling depressed or isolated or anxious is a very natural response to unnatural sort of recent developments. Yeah. And, if you want to counteract that, you need to develop these sort of countermeasures, right? And be more proactive in creating what a thousand years ago would have just kind of fallen into your lap because it would have been something you experienced in your, your daily course of living. So reaching out to people for when I start feeling myself dip, whatever, however that manifests, um, very often I'll, I'll start reaching out to people I haven't connected with in a long time to say thank you or express my gratitude or love to them in some way. And it's, it's remarkable how much of an effect that has and how quickly the effect I, can set in. 
couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I literally, I've done that recently with a couple close friends, guys that I was close with, you know, while I was on active duty, that I served with overseas, then just hadn't talked to them in years. I mean, seven years. And then all of a sudden, you know, actually ha- having the courage to reach out to them, knowing that, you know, if they really do care about you and love you, they're not going to judge you for the lapse in communication. Yeah. And that's, I, I don't think I've, in, a, in not a single instance that I've reached out to somebody that I had lost contact with, had they ever kind of received me poorly. Yeah. And it's awesome, right? I mean, I feel like we didn't skip a beat. You got another friend. You can actually show gratitude mm-hmm. for who they are and what they did for you. And yeah. it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty badass. I mean, it's awesome. So speaking of badass, said part of the reason uh, you know, I, was like, I, was, I was eager and excited to have you on the podcast is, you know, A, I'd heard a lot about you. Uh, just as uh, from the perspective of like badass motherfuckery, uh, <laughs> which I found interesting in and of itself as a, as a uh, you as high performer, but the, the combination of that and the uh, openness to come on and talk about these things, uh, I, I really wanted to magnify through the podcast because uh, this is not uncommon. Uh, and, uh, you know, people who might hear this um, are, I think, accustomed to, as I have been, as we all are, to seeing sort of the Instagram highlight magazine cover version of other people's lives. So you hear the stories, and it seems like these titans of industry, these Navy SEALs, these fill-in-the-blank that you might aspire to be more like have none of the challenges that you're experiencing that you're experiencing yourself. And so it can become very easy to just assume that you're some broken toy without a fix that can lead to, lead to a lot of despair and ultimately suicide and all sorts of awful things. And like you said, in, in certain communities, whether that's yours or uh, I have friends in law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, within which they're effectively not allowed to have mental illness or uh, challenges with mental health. Yeah. Uh, these are in some respects like the, the exact places where people feel least likely to or, or open to talking about these things is where they need to talk about them the most. Absolutely. Right. And, uh, so I wanted this to, you know, not, not just provide, you know, an example of a very high performer who's willing to talk about these things openly, uh, but also to give people, uh, some tools and approaches, yeah. which, which you've developed and found, which, which I've also sort of over time, it's taken me an embarrassingly long time to fucking figure it out. But <laughs> so I'm hoping to short, you know, having you on will help kind of shorten the learning curve or steepen the learning curve for a lot of people. What would you say to, to, to folks out there, men and women, because certainly this does not, these, these types of um, challenges do not care <laughs> about gender or anything else. No. Uh, what, what would you say to someone who's really struggling right now? I mean, is there anything else that, uh, or anything that comes to mind offhand that you would, that you would say to them? I mean, I would say you're not alone. Yeah. Like, don't, you're not weak. Yeah. You're not broken. You're not different. You know, I, I've, I've been through some terrible times dealing with this and I'm dealing with it. I'm not ignoring it. Yeah. You know, I'm confronting it face on just like I would anything else. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm not broken. Like I feel very effective in what I do day to day. And I would say, you know, don't, don't fall victim to kind of the definition that everybody in society has put on, you know, mental illness. Yep. Is, is it being a badge of weakness? Cause it absolutely isn't. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's one of those phrases also that it's just <sighs> could use a rebranding, right? In the sense totally. like mental illness just sounds so sounds terrible, bad. Right? It's like, Oh, he's, he's fallen fallen ill with a bout of melancholia or whatever. It's like, oh, wow, what's wrong with that fucker? And whereas it's like in in some respects, I mean, you have mental illness, right? But you have mental injury too, right? So uh, there can be, and a lot of people experience these, uh, whether it's single acute events that kind of, uh, that, that have a traumatic impact and, and, uh, and lead their life to take a 90 degree turn. Uh, or as you pu- as you put it, there can be these these sort of repeated uh, exposures to different types of stressors, whether it's traumatic brain injury or sleep deprivation or otherwise. And in in some respects, I mean, it's we we tend to think about I think the like mental illness in a very abstract way. In, in so much as it's like, oh, there's something wrong with our mind. And therefore, it is somehow less legitimate than like an Achilles tendon sprain. Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is, like the brain's an organ. It can be damaged very easily. Uh, Things like dehydration dramatically increase the likelihood of some type of uh, sort of neuroanatomical injury. I can say from firsthand experience, having done lots of stupid things as a wrestler, cutting tons of weight. And... Uh, similarly, it's like you wouldn't be ashamed to go to an orthopedist to look at like plantar fasciitis, right. chronic, right, or acute, like Achilles tendon tear. Like, no, you wouldn't have any shame associated with that. And and similarly, I'm not saying flippantly that you should just brush aside any concerns about how things will be perceived, because uh, I, I think th- that over time this will become a broader conversation as more and more people uh, come out of the closet, so to speak. Um, with something that I think is is actually the the rule, not the exception. Yeah, certainly. Um, that uh, th- like these are these are experiences and conditions and injuries that can be rehabbed and they can be prehabbed also, right? So you can do things to fix it. You can also do things that make you more resilient and less susceptible. Yep. Well, here I, I'd say this too, like these issues that we've been talking about. I almost look at them as like the currency that I, you know, I, I paid. I'm paying for the growth that came out of all these experiences, right? And people yep. people talk about post-traumatic growth. I am so deeply thankful for the experiences that I had in service to this country. And I know <laughs> I'd struggle to find another guy that served, guy or gal that served in combat um, in defense of this nation that doesn't feel like they are a better version of themselves because of it. And this is a, this is a small price to pay, you know, I'll deal with it. It's just like the pro athlete that has, you know, some jacked up knees and shoulders now, but do you think that they would trade all those days of glory competing in athletics? Um, because they, they knew that they were going to be injured. Do you think that they would like give up all of that glory for, um, you know, maybe healthier knees and shoulders. I, I guarantee you every single one would be like, no, nah, I'm glad. You know what? I'm, I'll deal with it. 
you know, the experience that I was able to draw and the growth personally that I was able to pull from those experiences, it's, you, you can't put a price tag on it. Yeah. And I, and I think that's true also for, uh, I think it's personally, I think it's very true for sort of less obvious examples. It, it, and by obvious, I mean less high profile examples, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think that if, if I look at, for instance, uh, now that I know them as adults, like some of the mentors who had the biggest impacts on my life, I mean, really kind of in, in, fork in the road, they led me down a much, much better path uh, type of uh, impact on my life. And I look at the teachers and I look at the writers. Now that I've gotten to know some of these writers personally, I've realized how the their, their superpowers in some sense were forged like from a lot of their greatest pain and yeah, their absolutely. traumatic experiences. And like without those, they would have been unable to develop the things uh, that made them who they are and enabled them to actually put a positive dent in the world, which does not mean you have to impact 10 million people or 100 million people or 1,000 people. It could just be like your kid, yeah. which is there's no just, right? That's a big deal. Uh, and that your, like your gifts are, and I'm not, uh, other people have said this to me, Graham Duncan on the podcast, and, and quite a few people have said this because I'm fortunate that you know, people speak quite openly in this forum that like your, your, your greatest talents are right. They're right next to your greatest pain. Like they're not diametrically opposed. They're actually integrally related. Right. And so one thing I've tried very hard to do also is to look at some of these experiences and be like, okay, like I've had some very, very dark periods. How can I make that part, not divorce it from myself, not hate that part of myself, not try to compartmentalize it and lock it away because um, I will say you're you're going to deal with it whether you deal with it or not. What I mean by that is like you can choose to sort of look at it and and in the light and incorporate it uh, and sort of thank it in some ways for what it's taught you and enabled you to endure so that you can help other people to do the same. Or you can lock it away and you can have it manifest in, in the anger and frustration. Or these right. these you can have it kind of seep out through the cracks and deal with it in a much more complicated way. So f- so for me, it, it's, it's in a, in a, it is in a way putting on uh, not necessarily rose-colored glasses, but looking for the silver lining and trying to look for like the gift that is attached to to the pain. Absolutely. Uh, you know, adversity tempers, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah some, exactly. My, some of my greatest lessons learned both in the military and outside of the military have come through, you know, pretty serious failures. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, if you asked me about the, the number of times that I did great things yeah. as a leader in the teams, sometimes it's tough to even come, I'm like, I have to actually like think very hard about like the good things. I mean, I, because like the things that resonate with me are those times that I, I screwed something up Yeah. and I, you know, I got a pretty stern talking to from, you know, the troop commander that was in charge of me and I, I fixed it and I moved on and I grew from the experience. Yeah. Uh, what other, uh, what other habits or tools or, 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 practices have you you incorporated that have become more important to you or you've recognized as more important uh, 
after having these various experiences and uh, realizations aside from the uh, the PRTMS? Um, I think learning to so not just share my you know you know if I'm feeling off sharing that with people. I think just being more open and communicating, uh, you know, grief that yeah. I've I've kind of like swallowed and kept kind of hidden away. I think I've, you know, I've lost a bunch of friends in, in combat, but I've also lost some very close family members, my a younger brother, a father. And, uh, I never, never talked about it. I never talked about them. And recently I've, I've been in situations, I probably opening up to people and becoming more, you know, honest and vulnerable with people. Uh, I've, I've shared that a lot more openly and it's been one of the best medicines that I've found. I mean, it's almost, it's liberating, you know, talking about grief has been something that's unlocked a lot of happiness for me. How did you decide to do that? I mean, was there a particular conversation or a particular day when you're like, fuck it, I'm going to talk about this. I mean, what, if you, if you didn't yeah. for so long, right? Like what was, what was the catalyst? Or I was what? for it. Like, so to be frank, I was kind of forced into it. Uh, I belong to entrepreneurs organization, San Diego chapter. And I, I joined about a year and a half ago and, uh, put into a forum, like seven, eight guys or gals, uh, all entrepreneurs. And, uh, we went on a retreat and in that construct, which is, you know, all in confidence, you know, sharing top and bottom 5% of your life, uh, you know, I shared what we, you call lifeline. So it's an exercise where basically you walk from like kind of the beginning of your life to where you are present day. And it almost looks like a, like a, a cardiogram, yeah, right? Up, like down, highs, up, down, ups up, and down. downs, like a seismic, you know, uh, sure, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, so I was kind of forced into talking about like, you know, some very shitty times in my life and, talking about losing guys overseas and, and riding home with a bunch of casements and, you know, putting myself in, uh, you know, putting myself in people like, like seeing myself in, in some of the guys that, it, that died cause they were in, you know, very similar places in life, you know, compared to me at the time that we lost them. Um, you know, it, it, it was like the most, therapeutic uh experience being forced to share that and and having you know uncomfortable to say the least and i'm not a very emotional person but but it was like the doing that being forced into that exercise has made it so much easier to to share like more openly with people it's like every time i talk about it it gets a little bit easier yeah and to the point where now I can actually talk about it and I'm not a mess. Like I remember the first time I talked about, um, there's a, a guy, his name was Brendan Looney, that we lost in a, a Black Hawk helicopter crash in September of 2010 in Afghanistan. And he was killed with, along with eight other U.S. service members. And uh, every time I talked, and I didn't talk about it for a long time, but I like I saw a lot. I saw myself and Brendan. Brendan was newly married. I was newly married. 
young Naval Academy officer. I went to the same school and uh, I, I, you know, I flew home with, with him when he went back to, to Baltimore and spent time with his family and got to see, you know, his high school, which was a private Catholic high school, which I went to a private Catholic high school. It's just like, like it, it resonated with me. It impacted me tremendously. And I, and I don't know, I've lost other guys that I've been close to, but for some reason it was like, I, it was almost like watching your own funeral, um, which was super heavy. And, and I just refrained from talking about it. And, uh, you know, I, the first time I did start to share it and I talked about it, it was just a complete mess. Like, like snot and like, like couldn't stop crying. And like, it's just like, I've never, I haven't been like that. I mean, probably the last time I was like that, it was like at my, my brother's funeral. And, uh, I, I find myself now being able to, I mean, to talk about it, I, to talk about it in this forum. Like, it's almost like I'm comfortable. Like I, like, like I've, I'm, I'm dealing with it instead of just kind of keeping it suppressed. Yeah. And it's, I think I'm better for it, you know, and I, and I, and actually talking about it, I keeps, you know, his memory alive. Yeah. And I think it's the, the, it's the, it's the biggest show of gratitude that you can, you can give to somebody that, you know, that is, has sacrificed at that level is to keep their memory alive by telling their story and talking about how much they meant to you. And, uh, it, you've made so many really important points. Uh, I'd love to just repeat a few of them because, uh, I want, I want people to remember at least a few things that you, you just mentioned. One is that the expression of grief, how the expression of grief has given you access to greater joy and yeah. happiness. Uh, just so I don't sound like I'm interviewing myself this entire conversation, <laughs> I'm not going to get too deep into it. But like I didn't, there was a period of like 25, 30 years when I did not like cry at yeah. all. Funerals, you name it, no crying until about five or six years ago. And accessing that, uh, you know, what I always considered to be a negative or weak or fill in the blank, bad adjective emotion has unlocked so much of the top line in terms of the peaks of what you would consider positive emotions. Yeah. It's, it's been this entirely unexpected for me, a consequence yeah. uh, of that. And if people are entrepreneurs, I mean, that seems like reason, just that exercise alone seems like reason enough to join the EO. <laughs> and I certainly have no dog yeah. in that fight. I'm not paid by the EO. <laughs> uh, but I, I have, I do know a lot of people who have really, really benefited from the forum structure. Yeah. And for a lot, it seems like for a lot of people who join something like that, and I'm sure there are many different alternatives out there. I just happen to have been told of the EO forum structure a fair number of times for a lot of folks it seems like it's the first time when a they have the sort of comfort of speaking to a small group of people on a similar path with in confidence sure right like explicit you confidence. feel protected yeah right? explicit confidence yeah. and second where they also feel a beneficial level of peer pressure 
to be fully transparent. Yeah. Right. And that's an incredible combo. It's like competitive, right? It's yeah. Like the deeper one guy goes, you want to like one up him yeah. or her and yeah. go deeper than yeah. the next. Yeah. It gives you permission. Yeah. Right? It gives you permission. Uh, and, um, there, there's a book for people who maybe struggle with this. Um, there's a book that I, I have only read bits and pieces of, uh, but I, I know that it's been tremendously helpful to uh, a few friends of mine who have lost family members and had uh, perhaps not come from highly expressive environments and have really struggled to kind of metabolize the experience uh, on grief and grieving. It's a very generic, boring-sounding title, but uh, exceptionally well developed book uh, for people who may want to explore this. Uh, so that, that was the catalyst. That's you. Yeah. Sometimes you need a bunch of people that didn't serve in the military and it took yeah. them to kind of force me to, to, to deal with things that, yeah, yeah I, I had been suppressing for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. You know, I think we've, we've covered so much, uh, and I mean, there, there are all sorts of other things we could talk about. And I mean, we are going to mention and I'll mention a number of, sort of foundations that, uh, that both you know, active former military, non-military can uh, look to if they want to support sort of you and your brothers and sisters, both within the SEAL community and outside of the SEAL community. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, are there any other, uh, I want to mention a few sort of adjunct therapies that I think are, are worth researching for people who uh, are either affected directly or affected um, by loved ones who struggle with some of these, these challenges we've discussed. But uh, any, any other resources or suggestions, books you found helpful, if any, really anything at all that in, in terms of tools you would you would recommend to folks it doesn't have to be fancy it could be something very simple like the simple but underestimated in its impact like the 20 yeah. or 30 minutes of sun yeah no one. i mean so you know we i know we started with with rock climbing yeah um and that's a big part of my life i mean i have a true passion for it it makes me it gets me excited like i would much rather do that than go you know on a european vacation you know staying at the best hotels like i'd rather go sleep in the dirt and go climb boulder someplace <laughs> um you know i think it's just finding a finding something outside of family um and or work uh that you're just stoked on yeah um so you know climbing is a big part of my life i will say this year uh a good friend of mine uh david wells who is a you know, former pitcher through a perfect game as a Yankee, um, nicknames Boomer. He's a phenomenal human being. Um, he has been there for me through thick and thin, you know, going through some very low points. Um, you know, he's opened up his checkbook to help fund some of these alternative kind of like catalyst treatments. And, uh, David took me to uh, a piece of property in Michigan that he owns to go bow hunting, uh, and I, you know, I grew up gun hunting in Illinois, you know, just for like bird hunting, you know, normal, uh, you know, normal Midwestern hunting and, uh, had never picked a bow up. And, uh, I, I'm afraid that I'm like drinking the Kool-Aid because it's like, it's like climbing. Like it is, you, it will consume your life. It's like a, <laughs> a perpetual pursuit of perfection that you'll never attain. Yeah. 
And uh, like, it was super therapeutic for me. It was yeah. cool to pick up a bow. And like, you don't have to go out and hunt. You yeah. could pick up a, a, a recurve or a compound bow and go to the local archery range. And like the breathing, I mean, I don't even want to pick up guns anymore. Like, yeah. I, like I don't shoot, I, but going into the backyard and, and shooting arrows into a, a speed bag is, was super therapeutic. I mean. I'll second that. <laughs> Hugely therapeutic. I, I do think the breathing is a big piece of it. Yeah. Because you really have to pay attention to sort of the rhythm of the process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's also something, you know, not, not to stretch too far, but there's something innate, you know, over, let's call it hundreds of thousands of years, it might be more, of sort of evolution that has made holding and practicing with a bow gratifying on a, on a level that sort of exceeds like it's, it's more than the sum of its parts. If that makes sense. It's kind of like, it's like a a tie back to like the warrior roots. Right. Uh, I mean, I would, you know, I'm a total novice. Like, you know, the target needs to be like 20 yards from me for me to be like confident I'm hitting anything. Yeah. I'm no Tim Ferriss. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, but, this is, this is yet another example of where I've stalled at blue belt. But. <laughs> um, I, so I would say that, and this is something else that I wanted to, you know, say before we left today is I, you know, I had the honor of serving with some of the most brave human beings that were not Navy SEALs during my time overseas in combat, like in Iraq in 2006, I served with both three, two and three, five Marine Corps infantry units. And, uh, I mean, was able to like stand in combat with some of the most heroic human beings ever. And, uh, there's a lot of those guys and gals out there. I just, I don't want, you know, the, the seal teams and, and soft in general is in the spotlight a lot for better or for worse. And uh, it, there are so many people out there that have served this country with, you know, more courage and honor than, you know, you know, I could ever kind of admit to, to serving, you know, during my own time. That I, I, I want to make sure that they, people understand that, that there's a lot of remarkable human beings out there. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, being honest today uh, allows you know some of those folks out there um, that are total badasses to be able to come forward and and you know talk to their their buddies and and you know keep themselves healthy. Yeah, and their families. And their yeah. families, and you know what? We're lucky within the SEAL community. We have a lot of uh, benevolent support through great organizations, and uh, I just I just don't. I think it would be a tragedy for these other, uh, you know, veterans to not receive that same type of support. So it's just, it's, you know, I I consider myself like a conventional SEAL. Like I I served a lot in daylight combat and alongside conventional efforts during General Petraeus's counterinsurgency doctrine. And, uh, you know, I just, that's where, you know, kind of my, my heart and soul as a SEAL was, was serving on the battlefield during the day with, with very brave men. Well, I'm so glad that uh, we were able to do this in person uh, for a million reasons. Uh, and let me mention a few 
few organizations that people can take a look at if they would like. And I've had some exposure to uh, a number of these. So the Navy SEAL Foundation, uh, which is a four-star uh, nonprofit on Charity Navigator, which uh, we, we, could, we could discuss in a separate time. But can, you can check out the Navy SEAL Foundation at NavySEALFoundation.org. There's also the C4 Foundation, uh, which supports active duty SEAL families. It's C4, letter C, number four, foundation.org. Uh, and I will link to all these in the show notes so people don't have to scribble down notes. Uh, so I'll come to the, the, the URL for that in a minute. But Special Operations Warrior Foundation is another, and the Station Foundation. I want to mention a few other things, and these will all be in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast, uh, where you can just search Nick Norris, and all this will pop up, of course, uh, links to everything. Uh, people who are interested in a few other adjunct options potentially for, say, uh, treatment-resistant depression, I would encourage to take a look at it. It's not a panacea. There is some addictive potential, so you should read the indications, speak with a doctor, but ketamine can be uh, one uh, very powerful tool, particularly if you are at a point where you're suffering from uh, the very bottom uh, meaning suicidal ideation is is one tool that has has proven from a research perspective and is is legal and available in in clinics around the United States uh, and was only actually recently approved for nasal administration as well I think is is very uh, worth investigating for people who are really in a dark place or know someone who is um, there's a documentary called Trip of Compassion, which I just put out. I do not make any money from it. I did it pro bono uh, to help get this film out, which covers uh, specifically addressing PTSD and uh, using tools, including psychotherapy and MDMA. There are some veterans in that documentary, and uh, that's also... Uh, a therapy that is currently going through phase three trials. So people who are interested in learning more about that can go to maps.org and look for the phase three trials related to uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, Nick, people can find you on Instagram at Nick underscore Norris 1981. And <laughs> your company, which I would have already mentioned at this point in the introduction as well, can you just give us two, uh, just a, a short description of your company? Yeah, so we have a sunscreen company uh, called Amavara, and we invented a zinc oxide-only product that we have some provisional patents pending on. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, it's a healthy sunscreen, you know, mm -hmm. healthy for you and the environment. And, uh, you know, the differentiator for us is that we've solved all the poor aesthetic issues that zinc has. Typically, it makes your skin white. It feels terrible. It's thick and greasy. We have a, a product that goes on dry and clear and uh, is super gnarly water resistant. So if you're an athlete, I mean, we're endorsed and partnered with the North Shore Lifeguard Association out of Hawaii. So like kind of the 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 special operations of the lifeguard world. I mean, those I have a profound level of respect for those guys. I mean, they, they put themselves in situations that I can't even imagine. Um, and they, they've used our stuff and then it's the only sunscreen that they, those guys use. So, <laughs> and I have a, I have a bunch at home, uh, as we speak, uh, and people can learn more about that at Amavara, A-M-A-V-A-R-A dot com. Do you have any, Closing comments, requests, 
anything at all that you'd like to say before we wrap up? I mean, I just, I appreciate you giving me the platform to, to share this. Um, you know, if anything, I mean, we talked a little bit about it yesterday. I, you know, hopefully it's a message of hope. Yeah. Um, and hopefully relabeling uh, PTSD and mental illness and whatever other label people have placed on, on these issues. Yeah. Um, relabeling them in a positive light and looking them at them as a, you know, it's a currency that, that people have paid for some great personal growth in other areas of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I feel very confident that certainly, uh, if, if we discard my, my long winded soapbox moments, I think you did. Uh, I, I, I think that you delivered upon that really well today. And I, I do think it's, it's a message of hope. That's why I wanted to have this conversation and record it and share it. And, uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, if, if, if so many people, not just you, like you're one example of someone who's been a, at the top of, of many different disciplines, and I know scores more, some of whom are, are still too embarrassed or unwilling at this point, which is totally fair to talk about it publicly. But if, if people who are at those levels are experiencing these things and contending with them just as hundreds of thousands or millions of people are who are listening to this. Uh, there doesn't have to be on top of the challenge, which is manageable and addressable of developing the habits and putting together the group activities and maybe f joining a forum and so on. You don't have to add shame to that right. to solve list. That's it's, it's not just unhelpful. It's unnecessary. If anybody shames you or looks at you in a negative light because you've come forward, yeah, they they you probably don't have any room in your life for them. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. This is this is really, especially after speaking and writing publicly about this, the the number of people who've come forth to me publicly and in private, the types of people, the uh, the broad spectrum from uh, sort of private, say, you know, single mom all the way up to Fortune 500 CEO leads me to believe that the, these are challenges which are the, the norm yeah. and uh, that there, there need not be any shame in it and there are tools that can help. And I think that, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I'd, I'd uh, there, there, there are others out there who are also having these conversations, but at, at the very least, um, you being willing to come on and talk about this, uh, means a lot to me. Uh, certainly, I mean, I could have used hearing you met at many points when I was struggling in college and at, at other times. And so hopefully it'll catch, uh, catch some folks and show them that, you know, not only there's their light at the end of the tunnel, but there are very practical steps you can take, tools you can use that can aid you along the way. I'm here for you, buddy, if you need me. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Likewise. And uh, to everybody listening, I'll mention again, the show notes will have links to everything that we discussed at tim.blog forward slash podcast. You can just search Nick Norris and the episode with all links will pop up. And until next time, thank you for listening. Be safe, stress inoculate, pay attention to sleep, and see you next time. 
Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year, I focused on dramatically improving a few things. Surprise, surprise. Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit... You name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. Check it out. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look. Helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by LegalZoom, which more than 2 million Americans have used to help start their businesses. Past guests even, such as, well, WordPress lead developer, CEO of Automatic, Matt Mullenweg, now valued at more than a billion dollars, have used LegalZoom to help with their business needs, specifically in his case, to form his company. But LegalZoom isn't just for launching your business. Their services include everything from helping you to manage changing tax laws, reviewing contracts, creating NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, important stuff, handling lease agreements, and assisting with really any other legal challenge, hurdle, inconvenience that typically takes time and effort away from running your business. The best part is that you won't get charged by the hour because LegalZoom isn't a law firm, so they won't be running the clock up and spinning circles just to raise your bill. Instead, they just ask you to pay one low upfront price for whatever it is that you're looking to get a la carte style. So visit LegalZoom.com and check out their business section for all of their services. And if you want special savings, that's the terminology in the copy that they suggest. I don't know what the special savings is, folks, but it's titillating. If you want special savings, enter promo code TIM, T-I-M, at checkout. Capital T, lowercase I-M. Again, take a peek, LegalZoom.com, and enter promo code TIM. 